From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. You don't have to have a degree or a license to be in the funeral business in Colorado. But some horrendous cases lately mean more regulation is on the horizon. I personally full-heartedly believe in it, some sort of licensure. But on that same vein, I'm not a person that believes that a piece of paper is going to make somebody that has no morals or ethics all of a sudden develop morals and ethics. The head of the State Funeral Directors Association today on avoiding bad actors. Then I-70 bifurcated a Denver neighborhood, so Colorado built a park over the highway, a lid also designed to contain air pollution. Our climate team finds out if it's safe to breathe there. And a Club Q survivor reclaims her life a year later. I'm Leanne Klassen, and my husband Bob and I are CPR leadership partners. We are very happy to be able to support CPR. The wider reach, the wider coverage of the world, of Washington, of Colorado, and individual communities across various platforms all continues to add to the value of CPR, and it truly is a treasure for our state. Connect your passion for CPR with a gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. If there's a job that requires unwavering dignity, it would be that of funeral director. And yet Colorado has seen a few scoundrels in recent years. A lot of these bad actors in Colorado came from other states where they lost their license in other states. And because Colorado is the only state or the only state out of the 50 that does not require licensure for funeral home operators, These bad actors come to Colorado because they can get a job here and they just continue their criminal feelings here in Colorado. That is State Representative Matt Soper, a Grand Junction Republican. He's crafting a bill to bolster accountability at funeral businesses. Meanwhile, there are some steps you as a consumer can take to ensure a loved one's remains are handled properly. Joe Walsh is president of the Colorado Funeral Directors Association. Hi, Joe. Hi, good morning. Some recent incidents have sparked calls for reform. Most recently, 189 decomposing bodies found at a Penrose funeral business. Before that, hundreds of bodies in Montrose were sold as parts around the world without approval of family members. And numerous bodies were found decaying in the basement of a Leadville funeral business owned by the former county coroner. Some had been warehoused there for years. How can people have confidence in this state's funeral industry right now? My recommendation is members of the Colorado Funeral Directors Association promise to uphold our ethics and morals. You're stating that you're going to care for the deceased as a member of your own family. We also subscribe to keeping up continuing education. We do monthly webinars for our members This year, we did a uh, one-day symposium. We do all this, and it's self-imposed upon us. There is no state legislation, as obviously we've heard, but those that join want to be there on the leading edge saying, look, we're holding ourselves out above and beyond what other people are. 
I just want to be clear. Any of the funeral homes I mentioned that had these issues, were they, they were not members of your association? No, they were not members of our association. The funeral homes were not members, nor were they professional members. Because you can be a professional member of the CFDA and work at a facility that isn't a member for whatever the reason. Okay, so there's no overlap between the funeral homes and the bad actors and your association. No, sir. No, there is no overlap. Matter of fact, the first thing I did was check on that when I heard about this, just because, you know, we do have quite a few members and I don't know every one of them. I want to try, but I just don't. So I hear you saying first, check to see that they are a member. What else would you recommend? I mean, if I'm considering a funeral home, I suppose this would be an odd request, but should I ask for a tour? Should I be on the lookout for something? You can certainly ask for a tour. Now, there are parts of any funeral home that, you know, junkie public won't be allowed in for a various number of reasons, you know, like the preparation room, same with the crematory area, things of that nature. But, you know, most funeral homes, they shouldn't have any problem giving you a tour. That should not be an issue. If that is an issue, that should probably raise a little bit of a flag. Any other ideas? I've been saying since this all started, trust your gut. You know, I can't tell you that the most expensive funeral home is going to do the best job or the cheapest funeral home is going to do a bad job or or the best job either way. And I say this with a full heart belief, all of our funeral homes really do care. Now, any profession, you're going to get some bad actors. And these bad actors, they're going to be there no matter what. Even in states that are licensed, you hear periodically of situations where funeral directors are, you know, are bad actors. They're not following the rules. That's sad. That's very, very sad. However, we try very hard in our industry because of what our industry is, how sensitive it is. You know, we're caring for your loved one, your sibling, your your spouse, your parent, your grandparent. Everything is amplified 100% or better. Yeah, It's not like going out and buying a car where you buy this car and all of a sudden you're, you're like, oh my, you know, what did I do? Well, you know, you may be stuck with that car for four, five, six, seven years, but we can't undo the funeral. You know, we can't undo a cremation. So you want to make sure that you are good with your decisions that you make. You know, I think anyone would want to trust their gut about any sizable transaction, but asking people mm-hmm. to do that in the midst of their grief seems, you well, know, like a that, that is very true. We always talk to our folks about prearranging your services. Talk to your families, talk to your kids, talk to your parents about what you want. Do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? If so, what do you want? Church service, you know, this, that, and then go take care of it. Most of our funeral homes do a prepaid plan so that when mom or dad dies, the kids will go in and they're going to look at and say, oh, mom trusted XYZ funeral home and she paid for cremation with a memorial service at their facility and then they will help walk you through all of that get all the details and everything done that is one way families can choose to protect what they're doing and how they want things done and that way you're not operating out of a sense of panic or of a lack of planning you're not being ruled by emotions because Uh most of the time when you take care of that beforehand your emotions you know, mom and dad are taking, you know, they've obviously come to some sort of inner peace to do this. Now you'll still have to make decisions, but they're much simpler. Like, well, what day are we going to have it? When is everything going to happen? Not, oh my God, in the next 30 minutes, I have to make a potential life changing, altering decision. Mm -hmm. What funeral home to choose? 
I still find it hard to wrap my head around the fact that there are no credentials required in Colorado. So, like, I could be a funeral director today. Better hurry. Yes, sir. How can that? That's going to change with, you know, from what I'm hearing, things that are going to be proposed in the upcoming legislation. They want to change that because of these bad actors. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I personally full heartedly believe in it, some sort of licensure. But on that same vein, I'm not a person that believes that a piece of paper is going to make somebody that has no morals or ethics all of a sudden develop morals and ethics. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's a great idea because this does give the public some assurance that there is regulations and or licensure, depending, you know, how everything folds out. And, you know, we nobody knows this yet. So to be clear, you're you're not going to oppose such legislation, and or would you actually work for its passage? At this time, yes, we are very much working with the representatives and the senators to craft whatever legislation is proposed into something that is best practices for the funeral industry, considering where we are and what has happened. Is it true that? There was licensing in Colorado, but didn't that end in like the early 80s? It sure did. I just want to note, Joe, you attended mortuary school. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to be true for everyone I meet in this field. So should I ask that of someone I meet? You know, I don't see a problem with that. I'll be brutally honest. At mortuary school, I thought when I got out of there, I knew everything, Uh, you know, (laughs) because you learn so much stuff. But really what I learned was the foundation. And most of everything else I learned after that is on the job. It does, though, imply that you have some intention. You know, it's that you're not necessarily fly by night, doesn't it? That is very much true because you have committed. You know, I have a two-year degree, so I committed that time to get this education. You know, and then, I, of course, I passed the national boards. Mm-hmm. I mean, what will be interesting is if there is new regulation you're going to have good actors who've never Mm -hmm. been licensed before all of a sudden having to be licensed in a field that they have known perhaps their whole careers, right? I personally know many people like that, that have never had any formal schooling, any formal, you know, they've never uh, passed the national boards or gone to a mortuary school, accredited mortuary school or anything like that, but are, are very competent and smart and capable individuals. So, you know, one of the questions that, that we don't know is how is this bill that's forthcoming, how is it going to deal with this issue? I don't know. We're speaking with the head of the Colorado Funeral Directors Association, Joe Walsh. For what it's worth, Representative Matt Soper says he is keeping in mind the reputable people already in the field. The hardest part will be the transition. We'll just work very closely with the industry. Someone who's worked for a long time in the industry but may have no formal education. Absolutely, they need to stay in the industry because they've probably done a good job. They probably know what they're doing. So we don't necessarily want to create a hardship for the funeral home industry. So there's definitely going to be a transition plan to where those individuals who have been working will be able to continue. The owners of a funeral home in Penrose, Colorado, were arrested this month for improperly storing many, many bodies. John and Carrie Halford of the Return to Nature funeral home face felony charges of abusing a corpse, theft, money laundering, and forgery. 
In Colorado, you don't have to be credentialed to do this kind of work, but that may change. Let's return to my conversation with Joe Walsh, president of the Funeral Directors Association here. I asked him about the Penrose case. Did the green aspect of that business make it easier for that kind of abuse, do you think? I don't think so. This is my own opinion. I think using the word green, he's going with the catchword because the green movement, the green burial movement has been on the upswing here in Colorado the past few years because Colorado is a very much environmentally friendly state and green funerals are something that are growing. And I think he was just tagging onto that to get those folks that are conscientious about the environment, you know, as a catchword, as a keyword. Will you remind us briefly what happened at the funeral home in Montrose where well, body parts were sold? Yeah, from my understanding, the lady that was operating that too is currently serving prison time. She was operating a full-service funeral home. And on bodies that were supposed to be cremated, she was forging their signatures and selling body parts or whole bodies, apparently around the world, too, to different groups, organizations, research facilities, hospitals, medical schools, whatever. And after that happened, the law was enacted that as a funeral homeowner, you cannot own more than 10% of any whole body donation. Hmm. That 10% was put in there because... Say you've got investments into a, uh, you know, some investment company, and that uh, investment company, they have multiple fingers, and they reach out and they invested in a whole body donation service that's national. Now you don't have direct ties to that, but you're invested in it. No, you know, Representative Soper, who's proposing this funeral home regulation package, he noted that there are several large corporations that own most of the funeral homes in Colorado. And Denver area in particular, uh-huh. those entities are opposed to more regulation because they say it'll add to the cost of doing business. I wonder if your organization, the Colorado Funeral Directors Association, with only 46 of the state's smaller funeral businesses as members, if you can go up against those big players. That remains to be seen. A lot of our association here in the Denver metro area are some of those our members are part of those large corporations. Uh-huh. Those large corporations, they have the funds that they can really push to fight this. Now, will they succeed? That's hard to tell. Will it increase the cost to operate? I would have to say it most certainly will increase the cost, not only for them, but even for the small private funeral homes. Depending on how this legislation comes out, there is the potential that they could say, look, as of this date, if you are not you know, already licensed in another state or something, you're done and you have to start from ground zero. And the way it is set right now, your job pool is open to anybody that has any interest in the funeral industry. If it comes down where you can't work in the funeral home, unless you have passed the uh, national board and gone to mortuary school, you have shrunk your hiring pool. And now you'll have to pay more to get them because this one guy may be courted by three, four different funeral homes. You know, as well as anybody else, When you have to pay more for labor, everything else goes up. Joe, before we go, why do you do this work? (laughs) You know, I come from a family of people that have been very service oriented. My my mother was a nurse for 45 years. I have a brother that was a firefighter. I've been active in different civic organizations since I was 18 years old and Giving back and caring has always just been a part of how I've grown up. This 
job to me was a calling. Um, and I, I, I couldn't have been a police officer. I just, nope, that's not me. Couldn't be a teacher either. So, I mean, there's a lot of jobs I couldn't do, but this is one that I could do and where I can help folks. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate you giving us a call. Joe Walsh, president of the Colorado Funeral Directors Association. He owns 5280 Cremation and Funeral Service in Aurora. One more resource, searching DORA for business licenses and disciplinary records. DORA is Colorado's Department of Regulatory Agencies. Okay, I'm going to turn the microphone over now to two of my CPR colleagues who've been working on an important project. I'm Joe Wirtz, the Climate and Environment Editor. Here with me is Sam Brash, Climate and Environment Reporter. Hey, Sam. Hello, Joe. You are here to tell us a story about a park, Denver's newest park. You have been obsessed with this park for, well, the better part of a year. So let's start there. Tell me about the park. If we were out there today, right now, what would it be like? Sure. So just to paint a picture of this unnamed park in North Denver, it opened about a year ago, and it's small. It's about 800 feet long, a few hundred feet across. I went back there a couple of weeks ago, and it was just this like beautiful, warm fall evening. All the trees had started to change, and it just rocked. Like It was so pretty. This park is vibing. You got teams of kids playing, uh, looks like flag football on an AstroTurf field. Other kids just kind of hanging out in a field. Other kids riding lime scooters around, playing on a playground, spinning each other on different carousels. This park is in Elyria, Swansea. It's one, uh, it's a working class Latino neighborhood in Denver. And it's a place that's honestly lacked this sort of investment for decades. And tell me why you've been obsessed with this park. Why do you keep going out there? So it's not because like I'm in love with the splash plaids and the slides and all the cool things there, right? Like I have other parks in my neighborhood, but I'm obsessed with what's underneath the park. And that's Interstate 70, you know, the biggest east-west highway corridor that cuts across the entire state. This is a vibrant, successful, beautiful park. And maybe the most amazing thing is that if you just stand here, you can tell you're in the city, but there's no hint that you're actually on top of one of the state's biggest highways. And this proximity to the highway terrifies some residents like Yadira Sanchez. That's because she and her three kids all have severe asthma. Would you ever take your kids to that park? Would you ever go to that park? No. No, if, no. No, having an asthma attack is horrible. And putting them, exposing them to that in that park, I think it would just be suicidal for me <laughs> as a parent um, because it's just, no, it's, it's ridiculous. No, 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 I couldn't. This is why Sanchez spent years fighting plans for the park and the highway expansion in general. You know, Elyria Swansea is already one of the most polluted places in Colorado. It has the Suncor oil and gas refinery to the north, a Nestle Purina dog food factory right in the middle of it, and right alongside that, Interstate 70. She thought it was crazy to expand the highway, but also crazy to put something for kids right on top of that expanded source of air pollution. And are highways really a major source of pollution? And if so, like, what kind of pollution are we talking about? 
Well, we're talking about your cars, right? Tailpipes, tires, they put out all kinds of pollutants. We're talking about exhaust gases like nitrogen oxides, carbon monoxide, and tire wear creates particulates like uh, small enough to penetrate your lungs, even make it into your bloodstream. And this is why most scientists consider the area 500 feet from a highway to be a danger zone for people living, working nearby. A danger zone. Wow. And, and what kind of health problems are we talking about from this highway pollution? All kinds of stuff. You know, scientists have found that people living near highways have higher rates of asthma and heart disease. Unfortunately, these are a lot of the same problems that plague Elyria Swansea. You know, asthma hospitalization rates in the neighborhood are 40% higher than other Denver neighborhoods. A study from city health officials also found that residents there experience higher rates of asthma, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. So we've got a new park in Denver, like right smack dab in the middle of this this danger zone, uh, as people have described it, uh, right on top of one of the biggest sources of, of pollution. Is is the air at this park actually safe to breathe? Yeah, and that is the big question I've been looking into. It's what Sanchez wants to know, uh, and I'm also curious about it because there's a big push to build similar parks across the country. This even has a name. Uh, it's called the Cap and Cover Movement. Cap, like cap the highway and cover it, meaning cover it with the park? Yeah, or like housing even, real estate, all kinds of stuff. And it has really powerful supporters too, like Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Cars will still move, but it won't be a gash through the city anymore. And people, those neighborhoods can be reconnected. And you'll generate the scarcest thing ever, which is new land in the middle of a city. The supporters of this movement, they say it's a way to heal some of the damage left by the frenzy to build highways after World War II, a frenzy that often put roads right in the middle of communities of color, including in Elyria, Swansea, which again is a heavily Latino neighborhood. And before we get into the answers to your specific question, like whether or not the air is safe, I think it's important to to go back a bit and talk about how the highway ended up in this neighborhood in the first place. Let's do that. Let's let's go back. Tell me where this story starts. More and more and more cars. So it's a story that's probably familiar to a lot of communities of color. Elyria Swansea emerged as this working-class neighborhood way back in the late 19th century. Uh, the first wave of residents were from Eastern Europe. They worked in big uh, smelters and meatpacking plants. And then after World War II, that's when more Latino residents started to move in. And that's also when state and federal planners decided 46th Avenue, which runs right through the neighborhood, would be a great place for a freeway. A freeway? What, what kind of freeway? So what they proposed was this towering viaduct above the neighborhood. That immediately got pushback from residents at the time. I've, I found some news clips on this. And they wanted a street-level version so that it'd be more accessible to them, right, rather than just going over their neighborhood. And, like, less of an eyesore for everybody living underneath it. But did that any of that pushback effort actually work? It didn't. Well, sir, before too long, the freeway was completed. Uh, they built the viaduct. They built the viaduct. It proceeded. Construction wrapped up in 1964. Did it become a big eyesore? Yeah. I mean, it was this, you know, for decades, a, a pretty scary place to, to walk because it was just darker under there. It was a little dirtier. Um, and also this project, you know, demolished homes. It created this new division within the neighborhood. Uh, fast forward a few decades, though, that viaduct had started to crumble. Today, many of our highways are already obsolete. And highway planners decided that they needed to do some kind of update by the early 2000s. 
Okay, so we got this big viaduct that a lot of people in the neighborhoods really hate. Loud, ugly, dark underneath, scary underneath, weird streets and sidewalks underneath. But this highway corridor is super important to the city itself and, and the state, right? It's this huge east-west corridor through the capital city. And at this time, Denver is growing like crazy. Right, and highway planners wanted to take on all those problems at once. And the way they wanted to do that was by taking the highway, sinking it below street level, and actually nearly tripling its width by adding two lanes in each direction. Wow. Yeah, and instead of rebuilding that viaduct, like I said, they were going to put it down below the neighborhood. And then to connect that neighborhood, they were going to have a few bridges and, of course, this cover park, which was $125 million out of this $1.2 billion project. So the the park itself and the cover over the highway really reconnecting this community that was split by this this viaduct and this interstate to begin with. At least that was the plan. That was the pitch, Right. I wouldn't say that it won residents over. Really? It mobilized one of the fiercest freeway revolts we've seen in this city in recent memory, maybe ever. And I would say residents weren't pacified by this park plan either. I spoke to Candy Sitabaka. She was an Elyria Swansea resident who ended up leading the main opposition group called Ditch the Ditch and actually later represented the neighborhood on city council. We always called it the lipstick on a pig. It was their way to make it look less like a gash in the neighborhoods, further deepening the wound of our divide that I-70 originally caused. Most other opponents also saw the park as something called greenwashing, you know, an attempt to make a really environmentally damaging project seem a little more friendly, a little more green, right? And was air quality, air pollution a big part of the argument here uh, from folks in the community? Were they, you know, worried that expanding this highway, even if they were going to sink it, might actually make the pollution worse. Absolutely. And that is exactly what inspired multiple lawsuits that attempted to derail this entire thing. They claimed that by expanding the highway, the government was making it more likely that the neighborhood would see greater violations of the U.S. Clean Air Act. Those lawsuits did not prevail. Construction started in 2018, and it wrapped up in 2022 actually got the chance to go to the ribbon cutting for the park and that was seen as broadly sort of the the end of this project in general and at the time you know a lot of officials who came there really wanted to frame this as a different kind of highway project something that honored concerns of community didn't leave a neighborhood more divided but more connected Uh, stephanie pollack she was the acting director of the federal highway administration at the time and she told the crowd that the original elevated highway was an emblem of bad highway projects in the 50s and 60s and we can do across the country what we have done here in globeville and Elyria swansea Neighborhoods across the country can have this kind of reconnection and this kind of infrastructure investment. And she said the park was the emblem of a different approach. You know, this approach that honored residents' concerns, connected the neighborhood, and provided a real amenity right in the heart of the neighborhood. But aside from just the road and reconnecting the community, there's still another big question, right? Right. There's that same question we started with, is the air at the park safe to breathe? Some answers on that after a quick break, as Sam Brash talks about bringing his own set of air monitors to Denver's new cover park over Interstate 70. When it comes to health, 
There's always a human story to tell. I'm CPR health reporter John Daly. I devote myself to finding and telling those stories and to help you understand what it all means. I talk to researchers, medical professionals, policymakers, the most knowledgeable folks in their field, plus everyday Coloradans. These stories are your stories on the radio and online with graphics and helpful links. See more at CPR.org. I-70 split up a Denver neighborhood, so Colorado eventually built a park over the highway, a lid designed as well to contain air pollution. Our climate team wanted to find out if it's safe to breathe there. Let's rejoin Sam Brash and Joe Wirtz. Okay, so back to the big question here. Is highway pollution actually reaching Denver's new cover park? I'm thinking about it, and I've been out there. It's right over I-70. There's just thousands of cars whizzing by beneath this park. I can't imagine how it's not leading to more air pollution. But then again, I'm, I'm not an air quality scientist. Totally. I'm not either, and that's why I called Suzanne Paulson. She's an air quality scientist at the University of California, Los Angeles. And this is what she studies. She studies how highway pollution moves through the urban environment around trees and walls and everything that's there, right? And when I showed her pictures of this park, she said something pretty interesting. She said, from an air quality perspective, that old elevated viaduct might have been the better design. If a roadway is elevated, then the plume from the roadway has to come down and reach the ground. So the, the more time you have for it to be somewhere in the atmosphere and not in contact with the ground, the more dilution you get. So I actually know this old environmental nursery rhyme. It's uh, dilution is the solution to pollution. You nailed it, right? And that's what she's saying, that up on the viaduct, air pollution had more time to kind of dilute and tumble down with the air before it actually reached residence. The park, on the other hand, traps that pollution. And so the pollution can kind of accumulate in that tunnel. So the stuff that comes out of the end of that tunnel will be at higher concentrations. That's at least generally what you would expect. And that's why she said this was the worst configuration from an air quality perspective. It contains that pollution and then puts people in the area right where it would likely escape around the edges of the park. And this is what we wanted to put to the test. Was that pollution actually building up and getting into the park where people were playing, hanging out, doing everything they do? So put it to the test and and you did. Um, tell me how this worked. I, I know a little bit just because I, I signed some uh, expensive uh, expense forms for some pretty high-tech looking sensors that came to the office in these like military style briefcases. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. We and, went, and if I recall, you were pretty excited about it. You, yeah, it was torn to those boxes like it was uh, uh, your birthday. Totally journalism Christmas, right? Uh, what we got were these things called P-Track sensors. And these are things that track ultra-fine particulates. They're really closely associated with traffic emissions. We also worked with these things called purple air monitors. They track slightly larger particulates, but those are also associated with traffic emissions. And to make sure we were setting this up correctly, we worked with a scientist named Nick Clements at the University of Colorado Boulder, who operates this sort of air quality equipment as part of his job. 
Um, and the way we decided to take this on was we set up monitors at the edges of the park, we set up one in the middle of the park, and then we did a control monitor sort of downwind. And so we were thinking we would be able to see whether it was higher on the edges compared to the middle, but also whether it was higher at the whole park compared to something that probably wasn't being impacted by traffic emissions. And so the big moment here, what did you and the scientists find? So big caveat, right? That we are amateur air quality scientists working on a shoestring budget. This is not a definitive study. But what we were able to show was that pollution levels looked a little elevated towards the edges of the park, towards the center where you'd find soccer fields and playgrounds. Those levels actually weren't any higher and sometimes even lower than our control monitors away from the highway. You know, the hints here are that, you know, at least on this end of the park, that that it's not as bad as it could have been. Okay, so this seems like pretty good news overall. I mean, you still want to be cautious about overstating the results, but pretty good. It's The park is protective? I, I think it'd be going too far to say the park is protected. I'd say that this is an encouraging clue and that if we really wanted to take on this question, we'd need many more resources. You know, you need months and better equipment to, to find out you know, what happens when different winds and weather hits the park? What happens when there are more or less traffic? There's all kinds of things that you need to find out. But I'd say this was an encouraging first hint. You mentioned earlier there's this wider cap and cover movement, which wants to build these types of parks all over the country. What do people in those communities think about the threat of air pollution? Do they think it's a real hazard? Absolutely. And they think it's a problem with a pretty obvious solution. Have you ever heard of uh, Boston's Big Dig? Yeah, I have. It's uh, you know a huge highway infrastructure project, sort of got this legendary reputation of uh, having a lot of problems, a lot of cost sure. overruns, yeah. big That's delays. what most people think about, right? Yeah. But uh, the cap and cover movement, they see it as this glowing example for them because huh. it buried 1.5 miles of Interstate 93 in the middle of Boston. Jeez. Now, when you build a tunnel more than 1,000 feet, there are federal regulations that say you have to include active ventilation, something that's moving air from out of the tunnel where all those traffic emissions are building up and moving it somewhere else. And Pump they, it out. Right. In the case of the Big Dig, they have these huge ventilation towers that move the pollution up above residents. And as a result, uh, you know, transportation officials there were able to measure that carbon monoxide levels in the city dropped 15%. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. And what do these cap and cover advocates say? So I spoke to one of them. His name's Ben Crowther. He's a founder of the Freeway Fighters Network. And he thinks these caps are a good solution in places where it doesn't make sense to tear out a highway altogether. But that comes with a caveat. He thinks it should generally be done where it's big enough to include active ventilation and designers should just generally be really careful not to expose people to poor air quality. Highway caps offer some benefits, in particular uh, being able to cross the highway uh, on foot or on bike uh, more easily. Um, but generally speaking, it's investing in a, uh, it's making an infrastructure investment that really entrenches that highway uh, for the next 50 to 60 years of its lifespan. Uh, so you're band-aiding over um, the underlying cause and not addressing uh, the root issue. So to deal with all the pollution problems from the, the cars and trucks in these tunnels underground, the, the people that advocate for these cap and cover movements say there should be some system that actively pumps that pollution out of the tunnels, carries it up above, uh, above the highway, above the city. 
where it can it can mix with the air and get diluted, right? Exactly. And this actually came up in the fight over the I-70 cap. Uh, a lot of the highway proponents, you know, at first they wanted them to move I-70 to the north. When that appeared less likely, they said, okay, fine, make the cap longer than a thousand feet so we can include this active ventilation, right? We can move the pollution somewhere away from people. The state turned them down on that front because they said it would just be too expensive. And so what we've ended up with is a set of huge turbo fans that you'll see if you're driving underneath this park. And to be clear, that's not what we're talking about. That's a system that turns on if pollution builds up, if there's a fire, and it just is going to get the smoke out of the tunnel, but it puts it into the neighborhood. It'll be possible to drive from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean and from Canada to Mexico on safe, multi-lane, divided highways without a single stoplight or stop sign. So put it all together for me. Should other cities see Denver's new highway cap and park as a great example of a project that can reduce air pollution, or should they see this as a warning sign of something not to do? So my first big takeaway with all this is that air quality research is really hard to do well. Um, I'm, I'm really proud that we were able to find out as much as we did because it was not easy. And I want to just put a beacon up for any like young grad students out there maybe looking for a PhD dissertation topic. This would be a great topic. You know, invest resources, invest more time, really try to figure out is pollution impacting the park? Because like I said, we just have a hint, a clue. We don't have a full answer here. I think until that happens and until it happens in more places than just Denver, you know, people considering these cap and cover projects should be really cautious about putting people into this highway danger zone. And if there are ways to, to mitigate against that problem through active ventilation or something else, they should look into this. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. CPR climate editor Joe Wirtz and reporter Sam Brash talking about Sam's air quality tests above the new central I-70 in Denver. See photos and read Sam's full report at CPR.org. What happens to a school building that closes for good? Closures in several districts got listeners wondering. And so CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine got some answers. My office is covered in giant maps right now. Russell Ramsey looks at those maps frequently. Maps, I'm looking at maps. He also looks at spreadsheets of enrollment data. He has monthly meetings with Denver Public School officials. They share data to get updates on trends. That all goes into the complex process of figuring out what to do with school buildings if the school board votes to shut them down. It is with a heavy heart that I must announce that. I will be supporting the superintendent's recommendation to close two out the of The board three voted schools. to close three schools earlier this year. Ramsey, who oversees enrollment and campus planning, says none of the buildings are empty now. To understand what happened to the three closed schools, it's helpful to think of a row of dominoes falling. When a school in northeast Denver moved to a more central location, a special center for students with severe behavioral issues had to find a new spot. So it moved into one of the closed schools, Fairview Elementary. A growing elementary school, Swigert, built more classrooms in a second closed school. And Denver's online school moved into the third closed school. So far, Denver's been able to shuffle around students and programs. The building sold is a building that you never can get back. 
Ramsey knows more schools in Denver need to be closed. He's keeping an eye on other cities like San Antonio that are trying to find creative community uses for their buildings, like senior centers and early childhood centers. Denver continues to change, housing continues to change, development continues to change. And if we can find ways to hold on to buildings and find ways to use them in service of the community as community assets, it's always going to be better than to demolish a building and turn into a parking lot. Over in nearby Jefferson County, different city councils, we've already received one from the city of Edgewater. What to do with closed schools is more complex. First, the district has more than 20 closed schools to deal with. That's because it had about 30,000, yes, 30,000 excess seats in the district. Jeffco's Jeff Gatlin says the first step of what to do with an empty building is asking... Is there an anticipated need around enrollment and future enrollment in that area? And what's the current makeup of enrollment at the surrounding schools? If it looks like there won't be a future need, the district checks in with the community for their ideas. A committee reviews material and the school board decides whether to put the property up for sale. That could mean to a developer or a community group. So far, just two schools, Allendale and Zerger, have been cleared to be sold. And a third property, Campbell Elementary in Arvada, has been converted to a preschool already. At the two community forums, residents seem to want one main thing, says the district's Lisa Ralu. Everybody wants the property to become a park with a swimming pool. But the school district can't control who comes forward with a proposal. The district is working with a real estate brokerage firm. Ralu says the process has turned out to be more complicated than they thought. This is not our bread and butter in terms of, you know, we educate kids, we don't sell real estate. But she says they're learning a lot. The third big school district that's had enrollment growing in one part of the city and declining in the other is Aurora. That district wrapped the decision about what to do with its low enrollment schools into its three-year strategic blueprint plan. Driving that was what new models and programs might future students need. And strategic advisor Marianne Salmon says what did the community want? We want to, to the best of our ability, when we repurpose these schools, be providing the community with something that they feel is important to them. Two elementary schools were converted into two larger K-8 through magnet schools. One specializes in visual and performing arts, the other entrepreneurship. Another school was repurposed for students with severe behavioral disabilities. Three others consolidated into a new, bigger school. Sable Elementary will open as a district-run early childhood center next year, and ideas for Paris Elementary include a charter school, an affordable housing complex, a community center, and a project from the ABC Collective that focuses on youth supports. From tutoring to mental health, behavioral supports, child care, workforce development. Aurora's superintendent is expected to recommend one of those options to the school board later this month. One thing is clear, in many districts, there are more closures on the horizon. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mount Snicktow near Dillon is easily accessible from Denver and Boulder, which makes it a popular hike. Before 1926, Mount Snicktow was known as Big Professor, then Engelman Peak. Snicktow was the pen name of Georgetown journalist Edwin Patterson, who said it came from Native Americans. But it was more likely the name of a fellow journalist, W.F. Watkins, spelled backwards, and the W substituted with a U. 
The hike begins at Loveland Pass with a thousand-foot rise over the first mile. Undaunted hikers are rewarded with unobstructed views of Greys and Tories Peaks and the Gore Range. Even Breckenridge can be seen over the Continental Divide. The trail is entirely above treeline, so hikers may encounter snow at any time of year and strong winds at the summit of 13er Mount Snicktail. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. It's been close to a year since the attack on an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. Five people were murdered, including a friend Svetlana Heim tried to save. Today, Heim reflects on her very first visit to Club Q, her friend Derek Rump, and the decision to reclaim her future. A caution, the story includes graphic descriptions of gun violence and its impacts. Mass shootings are something I'm like, I already graduated high school, I'll be fine. And then, you know, you become so desensitized to it. Just really, even though I was in a place with a minority community of LGBTQ in Colorado Springs, you just seriously never think it's going to be you. I took my first real date with a woman out at Club Q. Then I started going by myself, and it was nice to be around other people like me, other people who are not heterosexual. Derek was there for that first date, and um, I remember going up to him to get around, and I was like, um, I'm actually on a first date. Do we look awkward? Do you think she likes me? And he's like, I don't know. You have to ask her yourself. And I'm like, this is going to be my new friend. (laughs) I always tell everyone he was kind of a big brother to me in a sense of he'd never just tell me what I wanted to hear. He'd always give it to me straight. And that's exactly what I needed sometimes. In about June of 2022, I started being a shot girl someone who serves mostly jello shots throughout the club and that really was helping with um, a lot of insecurities, social anxiety. It was kind of forcing me to get out of my patterns that was keeping me from making friends. I loved it. I loved working there. I mean all jobs have their up and downs but it became like a really close little family that I had on the weekends. I had just finished my quote-unquote shift. Two of my friends, it was literally their third time in. They just walked in, I'm like, okay, I'm done. Let's go out and smoke real quick on the patio. Went out and smoked. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go get my drink. I'll be right back. And then as I'm walking through the dance floor, I start hearing the noises. It was some rap song playing, and I literally was like, hmm, those are really realistic. Like, in my brain, I'm like, we have veterans here come here all the time. Like, that's got to be so triggering to them. And that's when I saw it. And I started running. I felt something hit me in the head, which I later learned was glass from a window. So I fell and crawled up the stairs and I made it to the patio and I was gonna start running for it. And I saw my fellow bartender, Michael, in the corner. So in my head I said, we go together. So I crouched down in front of him. 
We heard glass break. I didn't see it because I was focused on calming Michael down, but he said he saw the gun start going through the door. But I know in that moment, I was like, at least I'm shielding him. I remember him asking, is it over? And I'm like, we have to wait. Because we both saw Derek um, on the floor. It felt like hours sitting there, but it was probably a minute <laughs> till finally the gunshots had stopped. I told everyone to leave because I don't know what's happening. I don't know why it stopped, but go. And immediately went to Derek. I told him how much we loved him and no one can make my drink like him and I'm never going to be able to have my favorite drink anymore and many more expletives. Finally, the cops came in, and I just remember someone came and uh, started doing CPR. I remember him asking me to, like, how's he feel, listen to his heart, and I, I didn't really hear anything, but I kind of lied. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's still beating. Keep going. Like, I think he's, he's still here. I already, I already knew. It's something that will stay with me forever and still affects me and probably will for the rest of my life, but no one deserves to go along. I really miss him. <laughs> I remember someone asked me, like, well, what would you say to people who haven't lived through that? And my answer was, learn first aid, because you really never know because I put all of my basic first aid training that I'd ever learned in my whole life to use that night. And it's been months of guilt and feeling like I didn't do enough, but it's also, as my therapist reminds me, I'm not an EMT. <laughs> right now I'm a bartender and it took a lot of soul searching to see if I wanted to go back into a bar environment. It's definitely been weirdly healing to go into a bar and go to work in a bar and everything be fine and nothing bad happened. It's literally like a worst case scenario of what would you do if, it's like, well, the thing happened and we did this, this, and this. So I just wanna go do my job, live life as normally as I can while still giving myself the grace of, yeah, uh, you were already a little sensitive to loud noises, now you're hypersensitive to loud noises, and was definitely in a very low place at, at that time. I'm not as done with living as I thought I was. That is Svetlana Heim, a survivor of the Club Q shooting. Her profile was produced by KRCC's Abigail Beckman. Heim is one of four people featured in our series, Marking a Year. Read it at krcc.org. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.